I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on the Thought of Charles Taylor. The American philosopher Richard Rorty called him one of the most important philosophers writing in the world today. Political thinker Benjamin Barber ranks him, with Edmund Burke, as one of the few philosophers of high caliber who have dared to dirty their hands in politics. Isaiah Berlin praised his nobility, his empathy, and his total moral and intellectual sincerity. Charles Taylor, at 80, is Canada's most celebrated living thinker. A bilingual Quebecer, his father was English, his mother French, he's been a professor of philosophy at the Université de Montréal, as well as at McGill and Oxford, and he's lectured around the world, from Berkeley to Frankfurt to New Delhi. His books are defining works in their fields. One reviewer of 2007's A Secular Age said that the book had immediately become the entry ticket for any serious discussion of its subject, how modern societies became secular. Today on Ideas, David Cayley continues his five-hour exploration of Charles Taylor's life and work. Here's David Cayley. Isaiah Berlin once divided his fellow philosophers into two groups, the foxes and the hedgehogs. He drew this now famous distinction from the ancient Greek saying, the fox knows many little things, the hedgehog knows one big thing. Charles Taylor, in a collection of essays published in 1985, assigns himself to the hedgehog camp. In fact, he goes even further and names himself a monomaniac. It's a description that might puzzle a reader who consulted only the tables of contents of Taylor's many books. These would seem to show a thinker of quite diverse interests at home in various branches of both the humanities and the social sciences, and is apt to discuss poetry, politics, or religion as the finer points of philosophy. But this wide range is unified by a common concern with what Taylor calls philosophical anthropology, or, in other words, the question of how human beings are properly to be understood. The philosophical tradition in which he was initiated as a student at Oxford in the 1950s saw them primarily as detached and disembodied thinkers. It put the individual before society and considered science as our only access to positive, verifiable knowledge. Taylor decisively rejected this view. He saw people, first of all, as embodied, we're part of the world, not just observers of it. Second, as social, society is there before the individual. And finally, he saw people as interpreters of the world in themselves. We live by meanings that can't be reduced to scientific terms. His lifelong effort to vindicate this alternative view is what has made him a hedgehog. It has also put the phenomenon of language at the very center of his studies, language being at once a common cultural inheritance, 
the way in which we participate in the world and the means by which we interpret things. In the fall of 2010, I spent several days interviewing Charles Taylor at his home in the Laurentians, and his philosophy of language was one of our main topics. He spoke about a thinker on whom he has drawn heavily, a thinker who, in his words, originated a fundamentally different way of thinking about language and meaning. His name is Johann Gottfried Herder, a German philosopher, poet, literary critic, and Lutheran minister who lived between 1744 and 1803. Herder's understanding of language, Taylor says, arose in the context of a more general discovery, the integrity of different cultures and ways of life. What he focused on was the understanding of human beings as having each their own way of being human and of peoples also each their own way of being human, which couldn't be reduced one to the other and could only in the end properly coexist with each other on a kind of basis of equality, right? In which though the, the, the image that always arises, the image of the great orchestra in which all these instruments are different, but they play together. So he was passionate against colonialism in his day. I mean, the idea that Europeans should rush other parts of the world, which they're already beginning to do, and tell other people how to live. He was passionately against any kind of cultural hegemony. And this is interesting because, again, falsely, because of his notion of the nation, he is accused of being at the background of German nationalism. He was the opposite. He thought that the Germans should lay off the Slavs. They have their own culture. So it's not an accident that Herder is one of the great heroes of someone like Thomas Masaryk, right, who was the refounder of Czechoslovakia after the destruction of the Habsburg Empire, because he was really even-handedly for the utter autonomy of all peoples. Secondly, he was, he was against the powerful structure of the state. These were the two things that, of course, went together, because the state based on power is always willing, you know, willing and e eager to rush outside and conquer more territory. These are the things he was profoundly against. At the heart of Herder's sense of the uniqueness of different peoples and cultures was his view of language. In his treatise on the origins of language, he opposed the views of mainstream Enlightenment figures like John Locke in 17th century England and Condillac in 18th century France. These thinkers had put forward what Taylor calls the designative theory of meaning. Words designate objects, and their meanings derive from the things they point to. Condillac tells a just-so story about two children in a desert who spontaneously utter certain cries of feeling and then learn to associate a given cry with its apparent cause. From there, according to Condillac, language can be built up item by item, this for tree, that for dog, and so on. Herder's understanding was described by Isaiah Berlin, who was Herder's first contemporary champion, as expressivist. Berlin was Taylor's teacher at Oxford in the 1950s, and Taylor has adopted this usage. In this understanding, words are not just arbitrary pointers. 
They have their own expressive power, and they relate to each other as well as to their objects. However language originated, Taylor says, it cannot simply have been piece by piece. You couldn't build a language up word by word because we only have language in the first place because there's an issue of what the right word is, and that only can arise within a whole vocabulary. There has to be what Herder calls a Merkmal, a, a, a criterion. So in a certain very strange sense, there's a double holism in language, which is not taken account of by Contiac, uh, the holism of a whole vocabulary and the holism of a whole community speaking the language. So the idea that I can invent a language on my own, or some kid did, word by word, doesn't make sense. And this is what's, what shows the difference. You see, you can teach a dog to fetch, and then you can teach a dog to go. You can get a series of commands, and you can add one by one to the repertory, right? But that doesn't function like a real linguistic concept, where there are always reasons for this being the right word or that being the right word. So there's a, it's very hard to see how language, you have to have, think for a long time of all sorts of scenarios, how language could get going, because it isn't precisely built up in that way. So what is it? Well, what's missing here? What's missing here is a sense of how that consciousness gets established. And the Herderian idea is that, if you want to say the first words, if you want to call it that, are words that are expressive in the sense that they realize while expressing this new stance to the world, right? So we get this very important idea of what I call expressive constitutive. And we can see that operating in new coinages today, all the time, in language. For instance, take a very good contemporary example, cool. It's an interesting debate in the TLS of when cool started. And people go back to the 19th century. But it meant something different then. It meant... He's a cool character. It's kind of criticism. A cool cucumber, they used to say. In other words, somebody who is unruffled by things that they ought to be ruffled by. <laughs> they're walking here, stealing your wallet, and they're just walking through as though a really cool customer. But you see, that's not what my grandchildren call. Oh, that's so say, cool. Say cool, yeah. I mean, they might also think that's cool. <laughs> that's rather worrying. But I mean, the, <laughs> the sense of the word is very different. And that other word has become a French word in, in Quebec. C'est cool, mon gars, you see. Now, how to understand that? It gets born by people expressing a certain kind of stance to the world expressively and then finding the words that, as it were, fit that and then become established for that. And this is an example of how new meanings are created by finding their expression. And... So there's some a new kind of meaning, which is not there already in the world, just waiting to be named like dogs and cats, but which is brought about in the world through language or expression. It's that what I want to call the constitutive. Whereas the other, the designative instrumental view, is always thinking the thing has got to be there. Because it's, I mean, it's partly that they are focused on a certain set of examples. So we get back to the same thing that I'm always arguing with, a conception of human relation to the world in which they objectify it, they see it as 
out there, something different and objectified to be described in neutral terms, like in a science. And of course, in that case, what you want is these coinages, which simply enter into the naming of or the pointing to already existing object. That's what you want in those cases. So the mistake is, as always, to think that what fits those cases must fit the whole phenomenon. And the surprising thing is that it couldn't. I mean, you couldn't see how language could get going unless it had this powerful expressive dimension. And how even conceptual language could get going unless it went through an earlier phase, like when we play games with our children. And, you know, it's that there's a whole ritual context building up the so we're in contact with the kid in the face of that object and the word bubbling up in the course of that. It's a kind of ritual of communion or being together, you see, which in which the word, first of all, emerges, which can later then be used. Or adult forms of it can be used, not doggy, but <laughs> which can later be used in this very abstracted, descriptive, you know, disengaged fashion. Now... You discovered some of this in Herder. Yeah. But obviously you were inclining that way already. Yes. And I was inclined that way by my whole background. See, when I was a kid, there were these two languages, right? And there was a big argument about whether one language wasn't being given its proper place, namely French, right? Right. And the way these two sides talked about it was completely different understanding of language. I mean, to oversimplify the English way, but they said, well, it's only, you know, they had the, the Lockean theory, it's only for communication. I mean, it's, it's you know. Why make so, such a fuss about it? Why make such a fuss about it? I mean, and so many more people speak English than speak French around here anyway. And so, I mean, let's not make it fun. Let's just settle for English, right? And the French said, you crazy. Language is connected to a whole way of being, a whole way of being in the world, a whole sense of humor, a whole sensibility. You know, it's just utterly connected to a whole way of life. In other words, they were spontaneous Herderians and the, <laughs> and the English were kind of spontaneous Lockeans. Now, I lived through this and I thought, you know, French are right. You just look at these two people talking, <laughs> two groups talking, and something very different is going on here. You see, they're just, uh, you know, they just are not the same, just, just not the same contents being differently coded. You know, that's not at all what's going on. So I was kind of programmed to read Herder and say, yeah, yeah, <laughs> of course that's right. Is it really an original idea with him that yeah. there are... Yeah. Distinct, you, you would think that? No, distinct what, people's... Why is that discovery being made at that time? What uh -huh. is he seeing? Well, no, because you see, you have there are preconditions to make this. It can't simply be that you have people ranged in a hierarchy. So we have the truth and they have religious lies, right? The conquistadores arrive in, in Mexico and these people have this terrible religion. Well, what is it? They're worshipping the devil. Perfectly familiar, familiar phenomenon. I mean, different form of perfectly familiar phenomenon. See, the differences are there, but it's not easy to conceive it all as differences that are perfectly legitimate. You know, they're differences because they're right to be different because they have a different experience, and that's what they're articulating. That's the new 
idea, you see. That, that's why Herder's view has to go along with ferocious anti-colonialism and rejection of any imperial control of the Germans over the Slavs and all that kind of thing, because he just refuses to code it in terms of these people are savages or these people are backward or these people are totally wrong. See, that's the, that is the new idea. Then a totally new so where map of the world begins to evolve in your head. Now, Herder is one of the really big figures of that, which is why the idea that he's one of the background <laughs> figures in what ended up as Nazism is so grotesque, <laughs> absolutely grotesque. And he wasn't a German nationalist at all. You know? He wasn't everybody nationalist. Charles Taylor argues that the expressive, constitutive account of language that he espouses began with Herder. What Herder was opposing was what Taylor calls the designative theory. It was argued by 17th-century thinkers like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, and later by Jeremy Bentham. These were thinkers who wanted to restrain and confine the expressive power of language, not because they couldn't recognize it, but, on the contrary, because they feared this power as a threat to the nascent scientific attitude that they favored. If you think that where you really get things right is when you have an objective view of disengaged mind, looking at the universe, finding names for everything, getting the, seeing the correlations and extracting the natural laws and so on, then you need a language which exactly fits that designative formula. That is, that each distinct object has its own distinct word and that these words are arbitrary, they don't in any way reflect or picture the reality. In the way, for instance, that a mode of speaking which we all have in ordinary life, which has a very high mimetic component, you know, I do something with my hands to express either a reaction of horror or I say it was a lovely shape like this, the mimetic component of my expression is, of course, not at all arbitrary. It's all very much an attempt to capture the object, right? But if you are doing science, you don't use the mimetic, and you don't use metaphor, right? Because metaphor is another way of trying to portray through something else the nature of what you're talking about. And if you read Hobbes and Locke and those people, they are violent against metaphor. It's muddying the waters. You, you, you get your definitions all unclear. Metaphor has to be kept right out of the picture, as with Bentham as well, right? Bentham starts off the principles of morals and legislation by man has two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure, and we are all chained to the throne and so on. And then he goes on to tear into metaphor. <laughs> That's an utterly, I mean, it's just breathtakingly unconscious of the fact that we, no, it's very difficult to do without it. But they had grounds to fear it. Well, the grounds are this. If you think, yeah, the way you're going to think clearly is to start off with a very clear definition of each term and then stick to that definition of that same term as you go through the whole process of reasoning, combination, and so on. Then metaphor muddies the waters terribly because, I mean, it's a quite different expression which is meant to be for this same term. And, you know, everything gets all mixed up at that point. So that must be rigorously banned. And then you have, every time the word appears, it means the same thing. And so your reasoning is quite clear and transparent and potentially error-free. 
Words, Thomas Hobbes says, are wise men's counters, but the money of fools. Francis Bacon claims that words shoot back upon the understanding even of the wisest and mightily entangle and pervert their judgment. For these early proponents of what we now call science, vague words were potential instruments of superstition, mystification, and oppression. Words signify nothing but ideas in the mind of the speaker, Locke says. And, as such, they should function entirely as obedient servants of the speaker's intention. Clear thought became associated with individual freedom, as well as with progress in natural philosophy. And this scientific and eventually democratic revolution felt itself threatened by perspectives like Herder's, which saw language as the expression of the soul of a people. If your reading of it is that we had all this nonsense about ghosts, spirits, souls, gods, and so on, and what all there really was is matter, and what seemed to be the basis of the initial success of people like Galileo, that they had an account of matter where there was no reference to purpose, and there was no reference to, if you like, intentionality or mind or consciousness. That was the secret of the success of this early science. And we can agree that that was the secret of success of what Galileo did. But if you take as a dogma that that is, that sets the template for all future valid knowledge, and therefore, of course, we must, when we understand human beings, ultimately have no purpose, no intentionality involved in our explanatory concepts, if that's your dogma, and that was the revolution that brought that about, then you really have the sense that every time somebody comes along with a challenge to that, that attempt to explain human beings, that you know we're going back, to, the Tsar is going back, as it were, is the feeling you, you get. We're going back on the, the foundational move that made us move into this higher world. Then if you have a simple view of the Enlightenment and think that our belief in individual freedom and democracy and so on is also somehow bound up with that move, which is also a very questionable thesis, but if you think that, then you get very, very rattled. And I think that the phenomenon of what people call angry atheists today is reflective of that. You know, just as a lot of Victorian bishops were very upset by Darwin and were lashing out in all directions, you know, do you think your grandfather was a monkey and so on, all that kind of stuff, they obviously were rattled. Why? Because they had a picture of the way the world was moving, you know, which wonderful picture. Every, the world is all becoming Christian. Christians are all becoming Protestants. More or less, Protestants are all becoming enlightened. It's a beautiful world. And now somebody comes along, and obviously that shows a design of God, right? How could it not show a design of God? And then somebody comes along and says, design, that's nonsense, that's crazy. Let me show you. These people are very, very worrying. You want to sort of snap them out. Well, now there's a picture that in the late 20th century a lot of people had. We've got rid of religion, we've got rid of spooks, we've got rid of ghosts, we have science, we have enlightenment, and we're moving to the uplands, the same, very much the same kind of picture. We're all becoming civilized and we're all becoming democratic. And now religion is suddenly 
coming back. My God, what's happening? How can we stop this? It's the same kind of anguish and anger that go together, obviously, that you see with people like Dawkins today that one found in among, paradoxically, ironically, among a lot of Victorians in their reaction to Darwin. And you think it's illuminating to think about that in, in terms of a, yeah, it's illuminating a post-revolutionary climate, like a, that's a right. feeling that the revolution has happened. is precious, yeah. we've made but it's this vulnerable. Great, yeah, we've made this great step. There are always people trying to roll it back. Yeah. Well, I mean, see, there are two kinds of ways you can say the revolution has happened and it's absolutely so strong and clear that it's no problem at all. And then you get evidence that a lot of people aren't finding it clear. So the same thing happened to the Bolsheviks. You know, it should be obvious and nobody should be challenging this. But my God, we get all these people that are challenging the regime. They must be being paid for by British Secret Service or the Japanese Secret Service. So, And similarly here, they had the Dawkins and these people belong to a climate that said, you know, secularization is happening and people are becoming more civilized. And, and then there's evidence that that doesn't seem to be grabbing people. So you feel the fragility of this, yeah, of this gain. And it has to be defended. And of course, in the end, in both cases, the irony is you violate the basic principles of <laughs> tolerance and openness and so on in the name of defending the revolution of tolerance and openness. It's, I'm afraid, a kind of classic irony of modern history, modern revolutionary progressive history. The scientific revolution, in Charles Taylor's view, has had from the beginning a Jacobin or Bolshevik streak, which has made it willing, from time to time, to send its perceived enemies to the guillotine, or gulag. Biologist Richard Dawkins' fulminations against religion, in which faith is said to be a cop-out and God a brain disease, are a current example. What Taylor has tried to do, with characteristic fair-mindedness, has been to distinguish the realm in which the methods of the physical sciences apply from the realm in which they don't. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 137. Today's program is the second episode in a five-hour series on the thought of Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor. It's presented by David Cayley. How do you yourself see the proper place of, of what we call science, meaning, I mean, we use that word in so many ways, yeah, but yeah. often we use it to mean the natural, That's right. it's, materialistic yeah. sciences. Yeah. It's often used in that way, yes. And I think so the physics modeled the physics model, right. sciences, yeah. what is yeah. the proper place of that? Well, clearly there are all sorts of phenomena that we now can get a grip on, which have, have to be got a grip on by exactly those those methods. We wouldn't have a great deal of the technology we have and a great deal of the understanding we've achieved of the whole history of the universe and so on without putting our faith in these methods. So, I mean, what is needed is a sensibility to the possibility that there are a lot of other issues, particularly issues to do with human beings, that can't be dealt with in this way. I mean, take medicine, for example. 
Ortega, I mean, even now more narrowly, the issues of mental health. Well, plainly, some of these can be got at in a certain way, chemically. People discover ways of giving you Valium or Prozac or whatever it is to calm down your, your worries and so on. But plainly also, to me, plainly, this isn't enough. It can be very dangerous if you rely on it and can keep certain deep problems from ever being, ever surfacing and being dealt with. Which problems could only be dealt with, if I would let's say humanly, by some kind of growth and understanding, maybe induced by some relation to a therapist and so on, on the part of the person concerned. And so the all the causation of this particular malaise that people have is something that belongs in these different categories, can't be simply reduced to one. And exactly where you, how you divide up in your medical practice the prescription of certain drugs and the attempt to deal with the problem in terms of therapy is something that we're going to be debating for a long, long, long time. See, this is a case of a set of phenomena, human life, and in this case, human pathology, and a particular human, if you like, psychic pathology, which we're never going to get totally, or for a long time, we won't get totally clear on. Though I think, for my money, certain things are very clear. That is, that there is such a thing as an over-reliance on the chemical, which can have terrible consequences. Questions of meaning and interpretation exist on a continuum with questions capable of physical explanation, Charles Taylor says, and in the middle they overlap. In this middle zone, questions of brain chemistry can be, at the same time, questions of self-understanding, and vice versa. No neat boundary divides them. But one can clearly distinguish either end of the continuum, and in fields of inquiry where truth is clearly a matter of interpretation, Taylor has always insisted that methods proper only to the physical sciences must be abandoned. On their own ground, he is much more willing to concede that these hard sciences have improved our grasp of reality than some of his fellow philosophers. Take, for example, the late Richard Rorty, an eminent American philosopher and a friend with whom Taylor occasionally argued. Rorty claimed that we can only know the world by our descriptions of it. In other words, there is no objective reality because, as he says, there is no world under no description. To argue about whether there were nine planets before we discovered that there are nine planets was for him simply meaningless. Taylor sharply disagreed with Rorty. For Taylor, human beings alter under different descriptions and self-understandings. Planets don't. You can talk about, in the past tense, very naively saying that's the way things were, even though they weren't discovered to be that way. Whereas, in the case of, in a lot of cases of human science, the change in our self-conception becomes a you know, is inseparable from a change in us when we begin to conceive ourselves as free individuals, independent from others. 
it's not as though, which a lot of people naively think, we always were that way, but we had all these superstitions stopping us from realizing it, and then we threw that off and realized it. We actually become different kinds of beings. And this is not to deny that there are these intermediate cases where you, both kinds of science are kind of are inseparably interwoven, but there are clear, to me, extreme cases where we're dealing with a clear contrast. And he never wanted to accept that. Again, he'd say things like, um, you know, one of his papers said, well, I mean, we have modern tragedy and ancient tragedy, you know, Aeschylus and Shakespeare, so we have a different way of conceiving tragedy. And then we have modern Newtonian mechanics and Aristotelian mechanics, right? Well, it's just a different way of doing things, you know, a different way of understanding what is great art and so on. In one case, and a different way of understanding how to do physics in the other case. And there isn't, these cases can be put exactly on the same footing. And I'm saying, no, I mean, you couldn't, we could decide we don't like this Shakespeare stuff. We're going to go back and just watch, you know, just watch Aeschylus. That's all we're going to accept. Or we're just going to play music of the 18th century. And, but we can't, I'm mean, ridiculous to say we can decide that our seeing account of the movement of the projectile, that's what I really, you know, I resonate with that. So I'm taking that up. It just seems to me to be refuted as in not as good an account as the one we get Galileo and Newton. The natural sciences, in Charles Taylor's view, clearly make gains. Galileo's description of the flight of a cannonball is demonstrably superior to Aristotle's. The same cannot be said of the relation between ancient and modern political philosophy. Machiavelli and Hobbes do not improve on Aristotle in the same unquestionable way that Galileo does. And this sets up, Taylor thinks, a huge and continuing problem for the human sciences. You sit in the faculty club with your colleagues from physics and chemistry and so on, and they win Nobel Prizes or whatever, you know, and, they, and you feel, mm, this is, I'm not really in the same league. Now, there's a tremendous temptation to put oneself in the same league by reconceiving the science political science, for instance, in a way that would allow that kind of very clear gain. And the clear gains would, uh, obviously in politics, allow one to make politics different and people's lives better and so on. And that's been a lot of the rhetoric around social science has been of that kind. You know, we need science in order to see how to make society better. So this temptation can't be done away with. You have to resist it. You have to see that you're distorting your own study in order to, as it were, go along with it. But there's no doubt that you're always going to sit as a political scientist or a sociologist in the faculty club looking across the table at the, at the physicists and so on and thinking, wow, you know. Or you, the airplane journey experience. So you start talking to your neighbor on the airplane. What do you do? What do you, what do you teach? Philosophy philosophy, what exactly <laughs> that <do> right? <laughs> you see, or 
it's even worse because sometimes you get the opposite, that people think that you have skills you don't have. For instance, people in medicine say, well, no, we have all these ethics questions. So we're looking for an ethicist. Now, would you be our ethicist on the committee? And you have this picture that they think it's like the anesthetist. I mean, you're going to know exactly what to do when the patient starts to fade up. <laughs> and you're going to come in and say, well, that's right, you've got to operate. And, you know, there just isn't such a thing as the ethical science in the way there is a science behind anesthesiology. I mean, so total misunderstanding, and you feel, as you refuse the offer, you feel deeply inadequate, right? because they, they're looking for somebody who can give them really hard, reliable answers. And all you could do, you could run a seminar with, you know, this Aristotle would say this, and he would say that, and what do you think, etc. So the, it's this kind of the sense of cultural prestige around these other sciences that is not going to change. The demand for ethicists has increased in lockstep with the power and reach of the life sciences, from organ transplants and test tube babies to nanobots and synthetic life forms. These new powers create agonizing, often imponderable dilemmas and make it tempting to believe that ethics possesses some sort of quasi-scientific discipline which makes it superior to lay judgment in ascertaining whether such things are good. Charles Taylor is not so sure. Well, I think there's a very deep misunderstanding around the term. See, this, the, there is a reality here, but it's so different from what people often conceive when they use a word like ethicist. The reality is that somebody who's had a lot of experience with a lot of different cases where there's a difficult judgment call to make and has begun to be able to perceive very quickly what the really important factors are, you want that person beside you if you have a really difficult case to resolve and the patient is being operated or whatever. You know, you want that kind of wise person helping you. The misconception is that that capacity is not something that can be simply conferred by a lot of general knowledge of scientific clear scientific fact or a scientific type fact so that somebody could just read off from that what needs to be done. The way, if you're building a bridge and you want to use this kind of cement, you'd want some engineer to say, you know, that kind of cement doesn't hold with that kind of weight, that kind of distance, and I can show you in my log so-and-so, you've got to change this and change that. See, So the misunderstanding is that they think you just need to have a certain general kind of training analogous to the engineer in ethics and you can fill this role, but you can't. So there is a real need for people with a real kind of <laughs> wisdom, if you like, or sense of it, but it can't be codified in the same way and it isn't based on scientific type understanding. It's based on, yeah, a lot of thinking about cases, a lot of reading and thinking about ethical decisions and a lot of experience real-life experience, and then you really, you've got somebody you can rely on. Charles Taylor doesn't argue that one can never make general rules about things like, let's say, conflict of interest. But he does say that there are cases that can't be codified or settled according to a rule. These cases are most common, he thinks, in fields like medicine, 
which sometimes operates on the threshold between life and death. What worries me a great deal, for instance, about the euthanasia debate, you see, I find difficulty being on either side of this today, I mean, lined up with either of the forces, because they're both assuming that you can give such absolutely general rules and then legally apply them. Whereas we're in a field, see, the euthanasia debate 100 years ago would be another matter. We're now in a field where technology can keep these organisms, you know, theoretically alive for, as you know, months and years. And do you do that? And I just wish the whole law would go away here and, and not try to codify that. I suppose it has to be codified in some way, but if you get both of these sides fighting over it, there's going to be some extremely narrow solution on whichever side, which is going to allow things to happen that shouldn't, or not allow things to happen that should. I mean, the idea that this is a terribly clear area and we just lay down principle, you know, we've blown that totally. That was the way it was a century ago, but we now have a technology which, you know, everybody can be, we could all be put into freezing, <laughs> freezing chambers until they find some way to cure our disease, you know, if you want to go like Howard Hughes. It's something that is a very, very worrying area where people are, fools are rushing in, where angels should be fearing to tread. The word ethics comes from the Greek word ethos, which we still use to denote the overall character of something. Ethics, in this sense, might refer to what fits a given society's sense of what is good. But in the age of the Ethics Committee, the meaning of the term has narrowed down and now denotes more or less what is correct or acceptable. This is a current instance of what Taylor regards as a besetting problem of the modern age, a preoccupation with what is right rather than what is good. For a lot of people, the issue of morals or ethics, and they don't distinguish the words, but the words can be, we'll talk in a minute how they can be used as terms of art in, for distinct purposes. They talk about that the issue is, well, what should we do? What's the right thing to do? And a great deal of ethical thinking, ethical theory, concerns how you decide what's the right thing to do. Now, the two most important theories for philosophers, not for the ordinary people, but in modern Anglo-Saxon philosophy, one is utilitarianism and the other is Kantianism. And they both offer answers to this question. Utilitarians say, you want to know what the right thing is to do? Well, count the utility consequences of action A and action B, and then one with the most utility, you do that. So you always have a way of deciding what you ought to do. And the Kantians say, the no. The greatest good of the greatest, the greatest number. number, for instance, yeah. yeah. And the Kantian answer to that is, well, that's not really right because it's not looking at the issue of what is intrinsically right. So we, what we need is a criterion for that, and the basic criterion of Kant is something that you can you can universalize as a principle for everybody is the right thing to do, and something that you cannot universalize is something that can't be the right thing to do. And there are obvious cases where that fits. You know, can I 
permit myself to steal your wallet. Well, what if everybody stole the wallet of the neighbor? The, you know, the whole this is what is sometimes up. called the categorical. Categorical imperative. imperative, right. Okay. Now, my problem with both of these is that they have narrowed the set of issues that we really are concerned with in ethics. And one obvious place that they've narrowed it, one obvious thing is left out, is what was actually the center of ancient ethics, Plato and Aristotle. Because they started off with another question, which is, what's a really good life? And this is a rather different question, because the issue of the right thing to do, it touches on, uh, to use the title of a book of one of the people who writes in this vein, what we owe to each other, you know, what, what I should do in terms of justice or what I owe to you as another human being. And, and a, we can answer that by saying, well, get the greatest good of the greatest number or, you know, follow Kant. But it doesn't answer a lot of big questions that we have in life. Now, for instance, if I'm you know, I'm going to decide whether I want to make my life as a philosopher or as a concert pianist or as somebody working in the Congo in mid-Saint-Saint-Frontier, whatever. You know, these are big questions about life, and they're answered sometimes partly by, I mean, I may decide to go to the mid-Saint-Saint-Frontier because it will be much better for everyone else and will help the world, but that doesn't answer for everybody the whole question of, What's a really worthwhile life? This is the kind of question that the ancient Plato and Aristotle made the central question of ethics. And they discussed that under the title of what's the good? Is the good pleasure? Is the good honor? Is the good theory, contemplation, understanding the universe? These are also ethical questions, and these also arise for us. And they can't even be completely separated because there are a lot of situations where considerations from both these domains enter into your final decision. But it is a great foreshortening of the whole discussion of morals if you just factor them out and say the only issue is what's the right thing to do. Now, sometimes arguments are given by utilitarians kind of moral, like moral blackmail arguments. Well, you ought to think only of that. I mean, if you're thinking of what is a really worthwhile life, then you might end up, indeed, being the concert pianist and not going out and working in Oxfam or something of that kind. And, you know, you, if you looked at it from that point of view, you're kind of, if you like, goofing off and you're not doing your duty. And there are very powerful arguments, people like Peter Singer, that we should all reduce our income to just marginally above the world average income, which, of course, for all of us fat cats in North America, even the thinnest cats in North America would be <laughs> an immense loss of income. Do we have that kind of obligation? Or are there other ends in life we might sacrifice by this, you know, which really worthwhile pursuing? The great uh, Russian nihilist Berinsky said, what is, you know, Shakespeare and Raphael a pair of boots is more important because people actually need boots to to clothe themselves in the winter. And, you know, what does Shakespeare, what does Raphael do for people? So some people have used the expression, the right should take precedence over the good. And Habermas at one point in his development said, well, the things we can really determine clearly are the issues about what's right. 
issues of the good life can't be decided universally because people have different cultures and different interests, but they should take second place. We should make sure that we have the proper justice, as it were, between human beings, and then we'll leave the issues of the good life to personal decision outside that. So the right comes before the good. Now, there's a big, big intellectual problem with this, which is somehow swept under the carpet, that in determining the right, issues of the good enter. I mean, for instance, normally speaking, the right thing to do would require that I leave you free to do what you want to do and and not try to interfere with you unless there's a good reason for doing so. Okay, but what's a good reason for doing so and what kinds of exercise of freedom are more essential than others? For instance, the idea that everyone's free doesn't seem to be badly damaged by forcing people to wear seatbelts when they're driving their cars. But what lies behind that? Why is that not a real restriction of freedom and telling you you can't belong to the religion you want to belong to or give your political opinion you want to give in public is? Well, because we have this unthematized background understanding that some things are more important in life than others. If I tell you you can't practice the religion you want to practice or the non-religion or or I tell you you can't give your political opinion in public debate. This, we think these are really important elements of a true human life that are being severely damaged. But if I say you have to stop at a red light or you have to wear a seatbelt, you know, what? You have, to, you have to give me a story about what's really important in human life, which is being frustrated by this, before I'm going to say, okay, you have a case. Now, you see, this shows that we're always operating with some background, unreflective understanding about what the important ends of life are. So first of all, we should maybe look at them and, and be upfront about them. But second of all, these enter into what look like pure judgments about the right. But if the good, yeah. the question of the what is the good or what is a good life is an indispensable part of our background understanding in making decisions, but yeah. it's put off, it's pushed off the table, not recognized, what in your view are the consequences? Well, the consequences are that we don't really reflect on this, that we take these issues as uh, the way common sense or our common understanding has made them fall out, but the, any kind of deeper challenge to what ordinary people think is, or we generally think is the good life, can't be mounted because you don't, you don't have the language to do that, you see. And sometimes you're going to want to say that there are very important issues. Like, for instance, you know, we talked earlier about universities. Should they be funded as institutions which are somehow giving qualifications to lots and lots of people which allow them to get jobs or, or giving us uh, people who will fill the essential professional slots in the society? Or because in some way, free thought, new discovery in philosophy and other domains is important. There's a kind of excellence and point to human life. As Aristotle said, human beings desire to know, right? In the first uh, sentence of the, of the metaphysics. Okay, we don't fully agree on that. We can't, in our society, we can't just let that 
fall out as people generally feel about it, because some of us think that the general consensus may not really give full value to this. And we find governments are funding universities in a way that show that they don't have the sense of the full value of learning for its own sake, for instance. So these issues are live, and you can't you can't just think, well, they're all already pretty well settled in our common understanding, so we don't need to examine them. Many common understandings draw on a background sense of what is good, Charles Taylor says. Bring this background to light, and you have what he calls a live issue, and often a political issue as well. Taylor, throughout his career, has been a political as well as an academic man. And in the next episode of this series, Tomorrow at This Time, I'll turn to this political side of his life, his political candidacies during the 1960s, his federalism, his writings on the politics of recognition. Please join me then. On Ideas, you've listened to the second program in our five-hour series, The Malaise of Modernity, Charles Taylor in Conversation. The series continues tomorrow at this time. Each show will be available as a podcast after its broadcast at cbc.ca slash podcasting. Or it can be streamed from our website at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter there and find out about upcoming programs. Tonight's program was prepared and presented by David Cayley with the help of Dave Field and Bernie Lucht. Our webmaster is Liz Nage. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. The Hourly News is next. <laughs> ¶¶